Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, the host of the channel, and today we're going to be talking about Larry Holmes's rather new book, uh, War, Evacuation, and the Exercise of Power, The Center, Periphery, and Kirov's Pedagogical Institute, 1941 through 1952. Hi, Larry, and thank you for being here today. Yes, thank you for having me. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I have been a teacher of Russian history at the University of South Alabama uh, since 1968, and I retired uh, in 2005. I started publishing books on Soviet education in the 1920s and 1930s, but more recently I have been interested in a study of the bureaucracy and administration in the Soviet Union. And I've been coming to the Russian provincial city of Kirov two or three times a year since the year 2000. So I'm somewhat of a citizen of the city of Kirov, as well as a citizen of Mobile, Alabama. So what got you interested in the topic of evacuation? Well, my last book on education uh, was on Soviet schools in the 1930s and in Kirov, actually, and I was interested in the administration of the schools, the bureaucracy, and I thought it was just a natural step forward to deal with bureaucracy and administration during the war years with a focus on evacuation, because I was interested in how the citizens of Kirov and the state and party organs uh, in Kirov responded to the deluge of evacuees and evacuated institutions to the region. Uh, By December of 1941, one quarter of a million people had evacuated to the Kirov region from Leningrad and Moscow. That made up 10% of the pre-war population and over 100 institutions, including factories and educational institutions had arrived here as well. And thus Kirov was told by the center to do all that was possible to welcome and take care of the evacuees and the evacuated institutions, food, clothing, and shelter to, to be provided by a region that was already very poor by Soviet standards. So this is a case study of one relatively small, unknown institution in a relatively unimportant province, very far from the front lines. Why is such a case study important, and what can it offer to readers who maybe are not into local history? Well, I'm interested, as I said uh, earlier, as is indicated in the title of the book, in the uh, exercise of power, uh, how the periphery and the center work out any differences they might have over decrees that come from the center and the failure locally of authorities to implement uh, the decrees from the center. Now, in order to study 
that topic, one needs a rather sharp focus on a particular area or a particular institution to see just how authority decrees, rules were or were not implemented, and the extent to which that created problems with the center. So I'm interested in the Kirov region, and I'm interested in the Pedagogical Institute precisely because it allows me to get to what I'm trying to study, and that is the implementation of power. Now, in order to do that, I also need a, a large source base, and I was very fortunate to discover, to discover decades ago that the archives in the Kirov region are extremely rich, and the material is eminently accessible, and the archivists most solicitous of the needs of the readers. So does your work build on like local Kriyavad traditions, which is sort of a Russian local history, or is this something different? Well, I, I build on regional study, and I'm very much uh, indebted uh, to the work of the local historians, the amateur historians, uh, because they know the archives inside and out, and they know where a lot of the material uh, might be found, and they have uh, uh, provided a lot of detail in the work. But I am not a local amateur historian. I am interested in more than just what happened on a single day, or I'm much more interested than just a single event. I'm, I'm interested in the again, exercise of power and the relationship between the center and the periphery, and all of that has to be placed in a regional and national and a possible global context. So in that sense, uh, I am not a regional uh, historian, a Krajeviet, as the Russians call it. So can you tell us a little bit about the Pedagogical Institute and why it was forced to evacuate? Uh, well, a quarter of a million people came to the uh, Kirov region, and 50,000 people came to the city of Kirov, and among the 50,000 were 10,000 people who came with the USSR's Commissariat of uh, Forest Industry, and that commissariat occupied the two main buildings that the Pedagogical Institute had, and local authorities, if they weren't told to do so, were certainly forced to send the Pedagogical Institute packing. And it was sent to the remote area, Yaransk, a little town of 10,000 people, uh, where in turn the Pedagogical Institute uh, exercised its authority in taking over facilities, food and clothing there, uh, as it had, uh, it, it exercised the same kind of authority there as the uh, Commissary to Forest Industry had exercised here. And the Commissary of Forest Industry is Narcomless, right? Yes, Narcomless. Okay. Well, actually, it's the USSR Narcomless and the Russian Republic Narcomless. Both commissariats came. Both to the Pedagogical Institute's uh, buildings? Well, they both occupied the buildings of the Pedagogical Institute. And a little bit later, workers associated with the uh, evacuated factory number 32, which was under the jurisdiction of the Commissary of Aviation Industry, occupied two floors of the of the Pedagogical Institute's uh, dormitory. So how did the Pedagogical Institute function in evaluation? Because, of course, schools need things. They need books. They need classrooms. They need um, you know, dormitory space. What sort of conditions and hardships did they face? 
well, moving into your aunt's. The Pedagogical Institute in your aunt's was a privileged institution and it received the two best buildings uh, in the city, but these things were very difficult for everybody there, the Pedagogical Institute included. Again, this is a remote area. Uh, it's very poor by Soviet standards before the war. It is now extremely poor. Uh, once the war begins, Yaransk itself is de is under deluge from evacuees, not just the Pedagogical Institute. I learned in my study of the Pedagogical Institute in Yaransk uh, what uh, nettles are, because people survived on nettles. I learned what a homemade wick lamp is, and I learned how to make coffee from dandelion roots. So conditions were difficult for everybody there. But you said that the Pedagogical Institute was a relatively privileged institute in Yuransk. Yes. What does that mean if they were, you know, making lamps out of wood splinters and eating dandelions? Well, that means it's even worse for other people. And there was a real contest. Uh, I shouldn't say so much contest, but struggle uh, between the Pedagogical Institute, its faculty and its students, and local inhabitants in Yuransk, Yuransk over food, clothing, and shelter. The Pedagogical Institute is privileged because it is a regional institution. It comes from the, the provincial capital of Kirov, but that doesn't mean that conditions are great for it. It certainly means that conditions are even worse for the people there. Did the people of Yuransk resent the Pedagogical Institute? I don't think initially the people in Yuransk or the local Soviet Party Institutes resented. Everyone thought the war would be short. Uh, everyone in Yaransk and in Kirov and in Moscow uh, thought that uh, the problem of evacuation was a temporary fix. It would all be over in a few months. So the people in Yaransk did not resent the presence of the Pedagogical Institute at first. But when evacuation drags on and the Pedagog Pedagogical Institute remains in Yaransk for three and one half years, people begin to resent the sacrifices they have to make in terms of food, clothing, and shelter uh, for this uh, institute that came from another place. Do they resent the Pedagogical Institute's attitude towards Uransk, for example, complaining about buildings and food when they already have the best stuff? The Uransk uh, citizens and Uransk state and party organs resented that their impression that the Pedagogical Institute was throwing its weight around, which it did to some extent, the Pedagogical Institute, its administrators and its faculty and some of its students resented the fact that they felt Yaransk was throwing its weight around. Now, there was a lot of cooperation. I don't want to say that it was just uh, all negative, but there were positive aspects to this story there, people sacrificing, people at the Pedagogical Institute sacrificing, local citizens sacrificing. But there was the inevitable struggle when you're forced to eat nettles, when the situation is that bad. So did they have trouble retaining students and staff in your aunts? Uh, they did initially because half the students didn't want to make the trek to Yaransk and half the faculty didn't go either. But there's no train depot in Yaransk, right? So they had, there's no train depot in well, Yaransk. Well, there's no train. Right? So to get to Yaransk, they took the train to Kotelnich and then they took the long walk. And that's exactly what it was in extremely bad weather. This was in October, the, the rains and also the snow. It took them two weeks 
That's a really long walk. To, to cover 90 kilometers, and they lost a lot of stuff. Well, they didn't take a lot of stuff to begin with. They didn't take the library. What they did take, they lost. Some of it they didn't recover until they returned to Kirov three and a half years later. Uh, and when they were there, they did get, there was some recovery because local people would, uh, local uh, uh, graduates of schools would enroll in the pedagogical institute, but not as many as the institute wanted because they were afraid the institute would sooner or later return to Kirov and they didn't want to come to Kirov. So you focus a fair amount on social stratification caused by people of different ranks getting different privileges. For example, a professor getting more food or ration tickets than just a senior teacher. People usually think of the USSR and communism as kind of having a leveling effect, even if that leveling meant everybody only had a little bit of one thing, like one potato per person. How common was this sort of institutionalized social stratification? Why was it practiced? And what effect did it have on the people of the pedagogical institute? Well, very complex question. Social stratification was part and parcel of Soviet life. Uh, there was, certainly with the early Stalinist period, no leveling. Indeed, there were decrees quite to the contrary. And, and rationing was heavily stratified. Uh, the professors got one thing, the associate professors got something less, and the average faculty member got significantly less. The professors were receiving, at least promised that they would receive, three times the amount of food that the average faculty member uh, received. Now, why the stratification? Well, to make you behave politically in, in one way, because you could be deprived of these things. You could be demoted and deprived of what you received. And also to uh, encourage people to excel quite naturally. Uh, so there's a, a lot going on here with social stratification, but it's part, again, to repeat, part and parcel of the Soviet system. Did it make people angry? Well, it made some people angry, particularly people who uh, received less than someone else. And there's there a lot of stuff here going on in the Pedagogical Institute. Anyone who's familiar with a uh, any institution, but an educational institution in particular, knows there are fault lines within the administration and the faculty. There are the highly ranked professors and the unranked. Uh, there are the newcomers and the old guard. In the Soviet case, there are the communists and the non-communists. Well, in the Pedagogical Institute's case, the professors tended to be evacuees, the newcomers. Uh, the unranked faculty members, those who received fewer rations, happened to be communists. So there's all sorts of uh, political and social um, uh, fault lines developing here. And so there was a lot of resentment. Uh, particularly on the part of the unranked communists, that the highfalutin professors who came from Leningrad uh, were getting much more than they were getting. So one of the people you really spend a lot of time talking about is one of these evacuated professors, the linguist Boris Alexandrovich Larin, who was originally from Leningrad. Uh, and you talk a lot about the problems he ran into with his scholarship and being a privileged outsider in Uransk. Who exactly is he? Why is he important? And what does his treatment tell us about this period? The 
chapter five on Laurie is a, is a relatively short but very significant chapter because it deals with the intersection of politics and scholarship uh, in the Pedagogical Institute and in the Soviet Union in a, in a larger uh, way. Laurie was already an, a well-known, highly respected scholar with an international reputation and he suddenly finds himself in evacuation in the uh, this small rural locale in Yaronsk. And he, in 1943, delivered a lecture, well-researched, in which he pointed out that the local language, the language in the region, had developed heavily under the influence of local Finno-Ugric and Tatar languages. So from Udmurtia and Tatarstan. No, these are Tatars living there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are Tatars living in that area. Oh, yeah, from Tatarstan. And Udmurtia. But, which... in, but in the in, in the Kirov region, in the mm-hmm. Kirov region, and Fino Ugric peoples as well, Mari peoples, Fino Ugric and Tatar. And that they had, in, and naturally had developed, had influenced the development of the Russian language. Well, it's fine to say that in the 1920s. It might be fine to say that in a normal science, uh, scholarly conference, but not now. Not with the rise of Russocentrism in the 1930s, and especially the Russocentrism that comes with the Great Patriotic War. What he has to say is maybe scholarly well-founded, but unpatriotic. And he was attacked on that basis, in particular by the people who already resented his presence, scholarship or otherwise, because he was one of these, quote, highfalutin professors from Leningrad who received more rations than a lot of other people in the Pedagogical Institute. So the story is not just one of scholarship versus politics. It's also a story that, again, tells us much about uh, stratified rationing, and it also tells us about the exercise of power within the Pedagogical Institute. Uh, Lottery was supported by the fellow professors. He was initially supported by the administrator, the director of the Pedagogical Institute. He was very much opposed by the party organization within the Pedagogical Institute. So there's a lot of fighting going on here on multiple fronts, and Lorraine lost. The party organization won. The administrator wasn't yet fired, but soon was fired, in part over his defense of Lorraine. Lorraine was lucky, finally, someone from Moscow came to his rescue and pulled him out of the situation. Uh, in late 1943, early 1944. I'm sure he was pleased to go, and I'm sure a lot of people in the Pedagogical Institute were pleased to see him go. So what consequences did he face? None. None. No, no consequences, because he was doing his job. The people who criticized him faced only criticism because they had failed to recognize, not his scholarship, that wasn't an issue, they had failed to recognize the necessity of stratified rationing. So it's unfair to criticize him even indirectly for getting more rations than anybody else. What measures did they want to take against him? I mean, did they just criticize him and make his life miserable? Did they want him removed from the Institute? Did they want him thrown out of the party? What did they want? Well, he wasn't a party member. So that's another that's another <laughs> fault line here, that Larian, like the fellow professors, were not party members. Only one, I think, only one of the professors was a party member. So all the professors are non-party people. That creates even more problems. Well, what they, I think they simply wanted him fired and, and or, or certainly roundly criticized, and that he was, 
And in a sense, he was fired because he was summoned to Moscow. It was He was glad to be fired. Let's put it that way. So the Pedagogical Institute seems not to have enjoyed Uransk very much and was constantly pushing to return to Kirov. Uh, how did Kirov City and Oblast administration react to these requests when it put them in conflict with the evacuated commissars from Moscow? Uh, and what did the Pedagogical Institute find when they did finally come home? Well, this may be the most important question uh, that you have asked today because it's a question that goes to the heart of the, of the study, uh, of the thesis of this book. We have a remarkable alliance in the city of Kirov uh, among state and party organs representing the municipality of Kirov and the region of Kirov in defense of the Pedagogical Institute. A real effort on the part of all of them together, no matter what Moscow says or seems to say, to support the Pedagogical Institute in its quest to return to Kirov. And once it returns to Kirov in the Pedagogical Institute's quest to get compensation from the USSR's Commissary of Forest Industry, whose employees had ransacked the two main buildings of the Pedagogical Institute. The Pedagogical Institute wanted compensation of one million rubles, quite a substantial sum at the time. And in that effort, it received the full and complete support of all of the state and party organs in the city uh, and in the region of Kirov against a commissary to forest industry, a central commissary that did not want to pay. Uh, the dispute went all the way to Kosygin, uh, who was deputy chair of the USSR Council of Ministers, uh, and also uh, to the Central Committee, which by and large ruled in favor of Kirov as opposed to the commissary of the forest industry. So here you have all these, this web of entangled alliances uh, shifting all the time in which state and party organs here and as well as in Moscow uh, do not act in accord with their position in a uh, monolithic structure uh, of authority arranged uh, in straight in vertical lines. The situation administratively uh, was much more complex and messy, uh, messier than that. What specific steps did the Kirov municipality and the Kirov region government and party organizations take to help the pedagogical institute? What did they actually do? Well, they wrote letters, memoranda, uh, reports, investigative reports, one after the other after the other to Moscow, in particular to Kosygin, uh, demanding that Kosygin instruct the commissary of forest industry uh, to compensate uh, the Pedagogical Institute for the damage done to the building and the contents of the building, books, doors, uh, wooden flooring had disappeared, probably burned for fuel. The, and in fact, the Commissary of Forest Industry had uh, not, uh, one night in January of 1943, had not drained the water from the radiators, and they froze, and the whole heating system exploded and needed to be repaired. Also, the uh, workers of uh, Factory Number 32, under the jurisdiction 
of the commissariat aviation industry, a powerful uh, commissariat, uh, would not leave the dormitory. This continued well after World War II. They occupied the first two floors of the dormitory, and they refused to leave. But you also said they trashed the dorms, like they, they, tra- they blocked the-, the toilets, they threw garbage and sewage in the corridors. and The two main buildings of the Pedagogical Institute were trashed. I will not describe for your audience the extent to which it was trashed, because we'll get into some, shall we say, smelly stuff. And it's just best to leave that unsaid. They can read the book. Smelly stuff, heaped high, inside and out. Well, the, 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 uh, the, the, the sewage system did not work. So why did Kirov Municipality and Oblast go to fight for the Pedagogical Institute against Moscow? Why was that something they chose to do? Well, it's because they're responsible for the Pedagogical Institute, and they think they're doing their job. It's not that they want to defy central authority per se, and no one ever defied the system. No one ever questioned the system of dictatorship. No one ever questioned the right of Moscow to, in the final analysis, determine what needed to be done. But what the regional and municipal authorities do here, and the pedagogical institute as well, is they say, we can't do some of these things. Or you have been, you have told us to do the impossible. Or we can't do our job. The Pedagogical Institute cannot train the next generation of historians, physicists, chemists, teachers, if the building remains in its uh, demolished state. And so something has to be done. So how could they take action, though, and not sound treasonous or insubordinate, even if they are saying, well, we need to train the next generation of historians, they're still attacking a central institution? They're attacking a central institution, but they are not attacking the system. There's a big, a big difference. Now, in effect, they may be, in an underhanded way, questioning the right of the center to make some of these decisions, but that's always unsaid. Always unsaid. So there's no attack on the on the dictatorship. There's no attack on the center, center's right to make these decisions. And there's an appeal to the center, Kosygin in particular, to a lesser extent, the central committee, to rein in another part of the center. So what you have here at the center uh, is not uh, a uh, vertically aligned system of power. And the pedagogical institute is told by the center to train the next generation of physicists and chemists. And so its response is, we can't do it. We can't do what you're telling us to do unless you come to our assistance in helping us get compensation from the commissary of forest industry. Well, how successful were they in their suit against Narcomless? Not completely successful, but somewhat successful. Uh, I don't know how much in, in the final result assistance they got from the Commissariat of Forest Industry, but it was substantial, and Kosygin told the Commissariat of Forest Industry to compensate the Pedagogical Institute. In money or in objects? Uh, Primarily in objects. So the Commissariat of Forest Industry already overtaxed. This is post-World War II. It's supposed to be making furniture for a variety of institutions in Moscow and elsewhere. Is told to produce desks and tables and flooring and doors for the Pedagogical Institute, and it does. How common was such a regional 
attack, denunciation case against a central organ. I mean, was this something unusual? Was this something that happened broadly? Do you not know? Well, my work is just on Kirov, but my guess is, given the circumstances that I've uncovered here, that it's it it is typical, definitely not atypical. And in my larger work now on evacuation, uh, which has just been published, uh, I certainly find it to be the case that um, uh, local authorities did resent what they were told uh, by the center when they could not, in fact, implement uh, the, the rules and regulations issued by the center. Now, it remains to take a look at similar circumstances in other regions uh, to find the same, but I think they will find roughly the same. And there are a number of studies of uh, center periphery relations in late Tsar's period and the uh, Soviet's period that that uh, reinforce what I have found in this case. And I talk about those studies in the book. So was there any blowback on local administrators, either in the region, the city, or the pedagogical institute itself for such action? Very little. I think that... Um, Zarochevsky, who was the director of the Pedagogical Institute since 1944 and who aggressively pursued compensation for the Pedagogical Institute, made himself too much of a, uh, uh, a bother for people in Moscow. And I think that's one of the reasons he was eventually fired in 1952, although there were other factors involved as well. But I do think they made him a scapegoat. Uh, but he... Um, Again, there were, uh, it, it's hard to say if if there were if there were victims, there's just one. What were the other things that Zarachevsky did that got him fired? Well, he was sick. He didn't show up for work half the time. And my guess is, no one ever says this, but my guess is that he is sick and not showing up for work half the time because he was tortured twice after his arrest in 1937 or 1938, and I don't think his health ever recovered. And he was arrested in 37, 38 as an enemy of the people? Uh, I'm sorry? He was arrested as an enemy of the people? Yes. He was a party official. And he was tortured once, I forget, maybe twice, and then released in 1940 and made immediately head of the, uh, head of the faculty of Marxism-Leninism in the Pedagogical Institute. Was that common for people who had been arrested as enemies of the people to then be put right back into positions of if power? They, yes, if they were still alive. That's a, that's a very big if. And he was okay with this? You know, he wasn't angry at the Soviet state for torturing him? He didn't, he didn't say. He didn't write. He didn't write about it. And he behaved as a very good Soviet executive in a way, although, as I just said, he was very insistent on getting Betty in the... Uh, seeing to it that the Pedagogical Institute got what uh, it deserved from the commissary of the forest industry. But so that maybe was Well, I, job, I, I right? don't think that's his way of getting back to the system. I think that's his way of, of serving the, the pedagog, Pedagogical Institute well because he is the director of the Pedagogical Institute. Institute. That is his job. That's what I was going to say. It's yeah. his job, isn't it, that's to it. advocate for the Pedagogical and Institute? And he did it well extremely well. And he was fired in 1942 and sent to Irbit, a teacher's institute, which is like sending you to Siberia in a way. I, I'm sorry, Irbit. 
the Pedagogical Institute in Yaransk instead of the Pedagogical Institute uh, in, uh, uh, in exile. So were there any differences in the way Americans and Russians write history that you had to take into consideration for the translation? No, I think that we do write history in different ways. Uh, I think, particularly if we're talking about uh, some historians, not all Russian historians, but that's not that's not a that's not a problem with the uh, with the translation. I think the problem here arises in that in Kirov, non-spatialists read the work, and the non-spatial and that's good. I'm not complaining. Uh, I'm glad to have only spatialists in the United States are going to read this book. I'm glad to have non-spatialists in Kirov read it, because, and they read it because it's about their pedagogical institute. It's about their own history. What some of them expect, if a book deals with the topic of World War II at all, the Greek Patriotic War, they expect that book to be about the front, about the sacrifices of the Soviet Union in defense, not only of Slavic civilization, but of Western civilization against Germany and the Nazi racist ideology. That's not what this book is about. Uh, it's not about the war. Uh, it's about the exercise of power. So how has your book been received overall by audiences in Kirov and you visited your Yuransk too? Well, a very positive response. Uh, they appreciate the fact that a foreigner is interested in, in their history uh, they are interested in the detailed history that's presented to them in this larger uh, context of political, cultural, social developments in the Soviet Union and in the larger context of the exercise of power. They're somewhat, many people are uncomfortable with some of the negative aspects that are shown here, or not the negative aspects, but the focus on how difficult it was and how difficulties gave rise to spats and quarrels and, and competition uh, for food, clothing, and shelter. That they're uncomfortable with, although they recognize that's part of history, but it's important for me to tell them, and I'm doing a better job now at telling them, that historian history, professional history, is not democracy. We as historians do not have a vote. We have to describe it and analyze it as it was, even if we don't like what it was like. That's our job to describe it as it was and to analyze why and how it happened that way. But the difficult everyday conditions tend not to be focused on or even mentioned in Russian history, correct? They don't focus on, you know, shortages of food or the, the backed up toilets or the destroyed heating system. I, I heard Zhiravin uh, from the archive say that that was one of the things you did well was give a very graphic visual picture in words of the conditions. You could feel it. I think that depends on where you are. I think that the, that kind of history is not written in the Russian provinces. That kind of history is written by some of the professional historians in Moscow. So I think in part we are talking about the distinction between, which is being erased as we speak, but the distinction between uh, history the way they write it in the provinces and history the way they write it in Moscow. So I was at the presentation you did in Kirov at the Gerson Library, uh, and you had some interesting comments that sort of reflected anti-American biases that still exist among some specialists. How did you address that, and how does that make you feel? Well, I'm not sure it's anti-American bias. 
what what these people, what some of my what some of these people, my critics want is an acknowledgement on the part of Americans, no matter what your subject matter, no matter what your book is, that the Soviet Union, that the Soviet people did contribute mightily to the victory over Germany, probably the key contributor to the victory over Germany, and they are all too aware that there are many people, not scholars, but many people in the West, not just in the United States, who denigrate these days uh, the Soviet contribution and the Soviet sacrifice of life, or who are totally unaware of it, or almost totally unaware of it, and they are hypersensitive to that, and there's some recent stuff that's come out recently about the battle of course not being a Soviet victory that was yeah, a, I saw this that. is going to add to that. And and no matter who you are, scholar or otherwise, if you've written a book about World War II, uh, you're going to you're going to be to some extent confronted with that not anti-American sentiment, but that disappointment, perhaps, is best to say, uh, with the way many Americans and many Westerners think about the war. Well, the scholar who wrote on Kursk was not American. I think he was German. Or whatever. Uh, but I think the most scandalous part of that article was that he said the monument to the dead at Kursk should be turned torn apart, torn down, because the victory was in, in many ways not the strategic victory that yes. they wrote about, that they had used basically kamikaze tank attacks. Some scholars have I've written for years that the Battle of Kursk was not a Soviet victory. But what that means is if it's not a Soviet victory, it's not a German victory, and the Soviet Union already has the initiative. So that the German failure to win at Kursk is in effect a defeat uh, for Germany. Well, fortunately... The presentation of my book occurred before this latest round that denigrates uh, the Soviet contribution to the war. Yeah, I think that was just a very culturally insensitive statement. You know, whether it was a victory or not, these people are still dead. Yeah. They died fighting for their country. To tear down their memorial is insane. Um, and have there been changes in reception of your work from when it was published in 2012? And you did presentations, I think, here at the library and at the archive in Russian to the way you were received this year? Is there a change as nationalism sort of picks up in Russia, or is it the same? Well, I think we've, we've discussed that to some extent. I think the, the growing sentiment here, uh, and there is growing nationalism, uh, which is not necessarily bad, altogether bad uh, in Russia, uh, means that Russians are more sensitive than ever before to any failure, uh, as they perceive it, on the part of a, a person from the West or a historian from the West to emphasize the importance of the Soviet contribution to the victory. That, that They're much more sensitive to that. Um, and we in the West, specialists and otherwise, have to be aware of that and prepared to respond to it. Now, I had another presentation in Yaransk after the presentation in Kirov, and I think to some extent I neutralized that. I began right at the very beginning and said, I'm a historian who recognizes the mighty contribution of the Soviet Union to the victory over Germany, the key contribution, and to the Soviet Union's defense of Slavic and Western civilization against Nazi racist ideology. I recognize that. I accept that. My book is not about that. And I think that helped. Uh, 
Do you think that there is an increase in anti-American bias? Because I know in Kirov, one of your detractors talked about the primitive American view of Soviet history before actually reading the book. Well, I'm not sure, again, that's anti-American bias. Uh, What I think this person is saying, and I did not have a chance to talk to him then, the situation was such that I could not respond to that, and I have not had a chance to talk with him subsequently. I think what he is saying is, I am familiar with all this old Western historical scholarship that was translated into Russian during Perestroika, the work of Pikes and Conquest, which... Is pretty okay, anti-Russian. Which is well, I'm not going to say that. Which is okay, but there are other work, there are other things, there are other studies that need to be made. If you're just familiar with conquest and with pipes, then I can understand why you might think, perhaps mis- mistakenly, that there is a primitive Western view on Russian history. I think that's where he's coming from. I just don't think he's well read. Well, you know, Pipes' gravestone actually reads like destroyer of the Soviet Union well, or something like that. His- so was Gorbachev, perhaps. So I, I, don't, I don't want to get into that. I, I want to be. I, I want to look see the best side of everyone involved. So what my complaint then will be about this particular person is that he had he has read what was translated for him during Perestroika and has not read a lot of material that has been published since then, although a lot of that has not been translated into Russian, so it is not available to him. Now, he should read my book. It's now available to him in Russian, and I hope that he will understand and say at some point, if he does read the book, well, this is not a primitive American uh, view. Although a lot of the Yale series is either printed in translation, or they're published simultaneously. A lot of pardon? The Yale series on Soviet history, the one that Fitzpatrick and Hlevnuk and stuff run. The next question then will be, is that material available to them uh, in the local library? It is online. Certainly I can find Danilov's, you know, Tragedia of Sovietska Drevnia online in all of its six-volume glory and other books. They need to be encouraged to read it. That's our next job. So has it become more difficult, do you think, to do research on World War II in Russia than when you began this book project? Has it become easier? Has it changed? Not for me. I think it might be more difficult if I went to another region and uh, who are you and where do you come from? And I would have to establish my earnestness there and that might be extremely difficult to do so. Uh, it's certainly, uh, uh, I, do, I do know that people are saying, and I hear this uh, more frequently now, that it is more difficult in general to conduct, for Westerners uh, to conduct research uh, in, this, in, in the Russian Federation. And it's probably more difficult for some Russian historians to do so as well. Because there's a new law, isn't there, preventing the uh, Oscar Blini offensiveness, offending of um, World War II era history, correct? Well, so, something along those lines. My response to that is there are two levels of truth in this country. The one level is the scholarship. No one pays much attention to that. Government authorities aren't reading, are not going to read my book on the Pedagogical Institute. And even if they might be disturbed it's what, that by what is there, they're not going to be disturbed by it because they're not going to read it. Now, if I said all of this in 
a uh, newspaper with a national distribution, I would get some uh, comment commentary. So there are two le- the level of truth in the mass media and the uh, and the level of truth uh, in the scholarly world. So what would you like readers to take away from your book? What do you think the main ideas should be? That in terms of the exercise of power, it was a mess, that there was no, if there was in fact, in the real real exercise of power, no monolithic structure of state and party organs acting according to uh, some sort of vertical arrangement. But reality was, and probably in the current Russian Federation, remains much messier than that. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, I think we've taken up enough of your time. Maybe you'd like to say something about a new project you're working on? Well, I have a book that's just come out, uh, published by the University Press of Kansas on evacuation. It's called Stalin's World War II Evacuations to Elicit Interest. Uh, and it's about how people in Kirov uh, and state and party organs in Kirov responded to the deluge of evacuees and institutions to the city of Kirov. So it's a it's a it's a broader study of evacuation than the pedagogical institute is, but with the same thesis that the that uh, the exercise of authority here is messy and complex and that local institutions and local people are quick to defend their own interests without challenging the system as such. You're also working on a book on soccer, correct? And sort of the exercise of power through sports and corruption. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, because that, that, at the moment it's just a sort of a, a as, as the Russians call it, a scholarly popular work. I'm interested in a local soccer football team, Dynamo, from 1979 to 1984, when it went from being one of the worst teams in the Soviet Union to one of the best, then back again to one of the worst. How and why did that happen? Well, there's a lot of under-the-table stuff that's occurring. We have here the nexus of politics and sports, and I want to uh, pursue that point, uh, uh, I hope, this spring in the Central Archives. Uh, and I'm in contact with some of the people in uh, the archives, and I think I will have access to the material that I need to look at. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, and thank you for your time. Well, I'm, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs>